From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll celebrate Central Library's 125th anniversary by learning about the building's history. Then we learn about Organic Valley, which started right here in Wisconsin in the 80s and continues to support organic farmers today. We've just seen in the last, you know, say five years of uh, ups and downs of the dairy industry and, uh, you know, Organic Valley's held the price and maintain it for uh, farmers like me to be able to continue making a living. Plus, we'll speak with the filmmakers behind the league to learn about the legacy and impact of the Negro League and its players. I grew up around that history. The older I got, the more I thought about it and really appreciated those stories is that not everybody knows these stories, which got me thinking, uh, there's probably more to this story. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Milwaukee Public Library's Central Library Branch opened in 1898. Designed by local architects as a home to both Milwaukee Public Library and the Milwaukee Public Museum. Central Library was designated as an official Milwaukee landmark in 1969, and it was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1974. This weekend, it celebrates another milestone, 125 years. And as you can imagine, a lot of change has happened in this period. To find out more about some of the building's history, I went to Central Library to meet with Casey Lapworth. She's a processing archivist special collections librarian and also put together a new self-guided tour of Central Library. To start, Lapworth describes what the area was like before the library was even built. Of course, Wisconsin Avenue was known as Grand Avenue then, and it was some row houses. Trinity Hospital was here. Calumet Club was here. So it was just a kind of a scattering. This whole block was just a scattering of different buildings. Mozart's Hall was here. That was kind of a little outdoor amphitheater and a park and they would have programs, which was, of course, musical programs, which was a big, because of the Germ our German heritage, it's such a big thing. So it was really kind of just a, a smattering of different things. So then I know the museum started looking for a new home because they had been in a couple buildings before. The library was looking for a new home. They had a couple other buildings before. And I don't know if they all went to a, you know, a tavern one night and had a beer and, <laughs> and said, hey, but, the idea came up for a joint building. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I assumed one was here before the other and they invited them in at some point, but it was a joint build, a from, joint institution from Milwaukee Public Museum and Milwaukee Public Library, right? Yeah, from the beginning it was, it was always meant to be a joint institution. Um, they had had some fires, we had had some fires, and so the big push was for a fireproof building. So the city started buying land and they had like an architecture competition, design competition. We had like 74 entries. Only two were local Milwaukee ones, and one of those was the actual winner. Um, and Frank Lloyd Wright even submitted an entry. And it's not as typical like you think, oh, it looks, you think prairie. And it wasn't. It this was, was more classical. It was classical. Yeah. And they were all kind of, the ones I've seen, they look similar because they all wanted kind of a classical style. And then, of course, ultimately the winner was Ferry and Class, and then they got started. Yeah, so when it comes to the construction, you found some amazing pictures of different sections and details being crafted and built. So when did construction start, and how long did this process take? 
1896, they had started building. I mean, there was so much planning before time. And also in the middle of this, they're building City Hall. I think they had a design competition for that. And so there's a lot of building going on. I think in like 1893, um, they started the planning and construction was going on in 1896. Ultimately ending up in 1898, they finished. And actually before the building even opened, they did have it open for a festival the summer before the library officially opened in 1898. So the library officially opened October 3rd. The summer they had must have had like a soft opening they used for this festival. And then the museum opened a couple months later, early 1899. Okay. So we're kind of going to jump ahead a little bit from the completion of construction and opening but at some point, and it was relatively soon, the original library museum building was running out of space. What were some of the problems they experienced because they realized we don't have enough room for what we have or enough room to grow? From what I've seen, it just seemed like within a few years they were out of space. It just happened so fast and I don't know if that's just the way the library was buying and they were getting use. I mean, there's pictures of some of the spaces so packed with people and it was just so popular and the museum was popular and they had their own departments so they're, you know, they're creating their own artifact. I mean, meaning like they have a taxidermy department so they're taxiderming animals. Everything just grew and within a few years they were out of space. So a few years later, they're already talking additions. Right, and so there are, to put it very simplistically, there's four editions that can be categorized. So um, when did that first edition start? And can you explain just like some of the main characteristics of each edition and what, what, what problems they addressed? So when you look at the plans, I mean, I know sometimes they refer to it as a U, but it really was kind of like an L shape. And the, the tall part of the L being the facade on Wisconsin Avenue. So, and then you had a little wing on the west side, which is 9th Street, which was like a museum. So the library was like all of the e- rotunda east, and then the museum was all rotunda to the west. So the first edition basically kind of filled that in and made it a rectangle. So it basically added like a sub-basement and then four floors all the way up. So as, you, as most people know, there's three floors. Um, so you have your main floor and then your second floor with a lot of the reference materials. And then there's a third floor that at the time was more uh, public space, but now it's administrative office for us. And then there's a fourth floor. And that was all for the museum, the fourth floor, because that was where all, they moved their administrative offices and a lot of their departments. Um, the second addition then actually came back in and filled in behind the dome. That's where, if you come into the registration off Wisconsin Avenue from the rotunda, what we call registration area, now it's just got a kind of a high ceiling. When it first opened, it had a huge domed ceiling. So it was probably super inefficient to heat like everything else. And so what they did is they brought the ceiling way down and they added two floors. So today that would be where the rare books room is. And the floor above that is now a staff space, but at the time uh, that actually became a library space at one point. So the second edition kind of just filled in behind the dome. Um, The third edition was actually kind of a rickety fifth floor that was on top of the fourth floor. It didn't last very long. It was like... Fell into disrepair pretty quickly. Yes, it was like, I think they, they edited in 30 and 31, and they took it down 30 years later when they got ready to after they added the fourth edition, which was basically in the 50s. And I just found out recently, they actually started to plan that edition right around the Depression. 
Oh, wow. So, okay. But they put it all off because, well, the depression. Yeah. <laughs> so it actually didn't start till like 55. So those first two editions were pretty close together. It was like the first one was like 1909 to 1912. And the second one uh, behind the, that filled in the space behind the dome was like 1913, 1915. Um, and then, of course, you've got the third one that was the 30s. And then the larger one that allowed us to take over like the entire block uh, was the 1955 edition. And that's probably the one most people are familiar with because it's the biggest and the most obvious. We have Well Street entrance now because of that. Yeah. And just the style. Yes. As it's well. so different from yeah. the rest of the building. It's very 50s. Yeah. So with these additions and some of the reconstruction, repurposing of rooms, kind of reorganizing, I want to give a shout out to the reference room and what it used to be. <laughs> can you, uh, and people can go online to see a picture of this. But can you explain what it was and what they turned it into? So the original building, uh, and this was the library portion, so you would go in, in the rotunda and you would hang a right heading towards 8th Street on the east side. Um, and that hallway, you would go into the community room, which was the catalog room. So that's just a room filled with card catalogs, and that's where you would look for books. Um, now, if you wanted to look at reference books, you would go, there was a door, actually, from the back of the community room through the hallway to this giant two-story, actually, it's almost three-story uh, reference room. And then there was, uh, there's a door along that hall. If you go today, that hallway is like the bookseller, and at the end is the old boardroom. Um, what's fascinating about that hall, too, is there's two display cases. Those were the original doors to the reference room. So if you ever go down and look at them, they're, like, really big. Um, now there's two center, like, very 50s doors that are locked because the room's storage now. But it was this huge kind of three-story. It had fireplaces in it. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at the few photos we have trying to find out where the fireplaces were or where the reference desk was. But I mean, it's all this like carving, these beautiful floors, like there was copper shelving. I work in there a lot because it's storage and that's where a lot of the MPL history records are kept. And so it's always kind of like, oh. What could have been? What could have been? <laughs> so, what could have been my office right now? Right. <laughs> I mean, it really is beautiful. I mean, because you wouldn't have accessed it from behind because that would have been museum space. But this was, this was the library and this was their big, beautiful reference room. It's just very sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. So with the growth of both organizations, the museum and the library, when was it that the museum actually moved out? It took them almost a decade to move out. I mean, they were planning the new building. I think 63 is when it officially opened. And they still had exhibits in the library and were open across the street. So it took a while. And the last relic was moved out. It was the giant, one of the giant elephants that was in what's now the Zeidler room. Um, he had to be dismantled to take cool. out. So that, and he moved out in 69. So it took him almost a decade to officially move out of the museum uh, building there. And then for years after, and even during that time, like the repainting and the redesigning, you know, there's a lot of pictures in the 50s or the early 60s where they're just starting to try to figure out what to do with this space. Yeah, try to reconfigure it. So you are celebrating a major milestone, the 125th anniversary of Central Library. And part of that is a tour you put together for people to interact with both here at the library and virtually going through sites within this building. Can you share a bit about how this came together? And did you work with staff here helping you to choose which areas to highlight? Because there's so much. There really is. So um, when I came down to Central, I started in the Humanities Department, and then of course the, the Special Collections Department. And so I worked the Zeidler room desk a lot. 
and people always like to wander in and because people because other staff will send them to us like oh I want to learn more about this building we have a couple of brochures but nothing super in-depth and that's a really big question it's an I we didn't have anything that I could just point and be like this is what it is I'd even print out some of my PowerPoint presentation just for some folks who had specific questions and I thought, wouldn't it be great to have something that we can refer people to? So maybe they don't want to do a dissertation on it, but they want to learn a little bit more about the building. And people love photos. So I already had most of these photos from my presentation, my program. So I just started to think about, you know, what spaces have changed the most? What are ones people see? What do we have great pictures of? And then I went to speak to some of our managers and I brought it up and I actually reminded everybody that it was the 125th. Um, so by the way, guys, <laughs> and they were like, great, you can be on the committee. So we kind of linked it to the committee. And so we got a little bit of a budget from the foundation. And um, we, so we started to kind of build that out. And uh, there was a couple of handful of staff members that really helped, like a lot of editing, a lot of rereading, just trying to keep it not too in-depth because you don't want to overwhelm people mm-hmm. but you want to give you know some basic facts and find some photos and just the kind of questions that the other side of the room staff get asked all the time so I inquired a lot with my coworkers and like what do you think and then certain places were just kind of little pet peeves you know like why isn't there a sign here that talks about like Mozart's Grove so I made sure that there was a mention about Mozart's Grove and why it was named that because of Mozart's Hall or there was a display um, outside of the Zeidler room that's a, like a library vignette and a lot of those things were used in the library over the years I mean we're basically our own kind of library history institution mm-hmm. because we've been around for so long so our cultural history is kind of some of the community history at this point Casey Lapworth is a processing archivist special collections librarian at Central Library Central Library will be celebrating its 125th anniversary this Saturday with a few presentations and events happening throughout the day. There's also a Milwaukee Public Library staff art show through the 14th, and you can find out more information at wuwm.com. WUWM and NPR are focusing on solutions to climate change this week. You'll hear stories on lake effect and throughout the day about ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Organic Valley hopes to be a part of that mission. It got its start in Wisconsin in 1988 and is now the nation's largest cooperative of organic farmers. They also recently announced a goal to be carbon neutral by 2050. WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz visited one of the original Organic Valley farms and spoke to James Wiederberg to learn about his approach to organic farming. So your dad was in the beginnings of Organic Valley, right? Right. So he was one of the uh, founding members mm-hmm. of Organic Valley in, in 1988. Since then, he's uh, taken some roles within the co-op, you know, working uh, in the office and then meanwhile still farming. Now my brother and I are taking over the farm together. So everything you grow, Jake, is for your cattle to be eat what they're eating, and then they're also grazing on the land, or? Yep. So we raise all of our own crops for yep. the dairy farm, and then we raise all of our own replacements. So uh, 
we cr everything we crop, we do like a six year rotation, uh, usually three years of hay, uh, two years of corn, organic, uh, you know, all certified organic. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we go into a, either a small grain of winter wheat or oats. And that's a cover crop for seeding down hay again. Mm -hmm. So we do like a six year rotation. And then we have permanent pastures that we rotationally graze all of our uh, livestock on. So right now, our uh, milking herd's getting smaller and our dry cow herd's getting larger. So now we're rotating our dry cows in all the different paddocks that uh, the, the milk cows were in mm -hmm. because they need uh, forage as well. So, And uh, once they're uh, done grazing here, we'll go to the next and then to the next. And then ideally with, you know, rotation of grazing, we do, uh, you know, a full 28 days or 30 day cycle. So they don't come back to that piece of ground uh, and grass for uh, a full month. Mm -hmm. How have operations evolved here? We try to make um, out of a lot of our pen pack manure and a manure that we produce here on the farm. Uh, we I windrow it and then we turn it. It started, you know, trying to figure out a way to, uh, you know, one, make it more plant available and then two, you know, kill some weed seeds and then three, you know, you know, build that aerobic uh, bacteria in there and compost is a good way to do that. Our first heifers from last fall when we calved, once they're six months old of age and it's springtime, we take them to a, a farm across the valley and we, we start rotationally grazing them. And we, you know, try to build fertility that way they're grazing and they maneuver where they're at and then move them. And uh, that's ideal, but obviously during the wintertime and it's January and it's 30 below zero, we have uh, places where manure is collected and then I'll, uh, I'll push it up into windrows, so like in bedded pack situations, so it's like a carbon envelope for manure, you know, higher nitrogen manure. So it's probably, oh, 10 feet okay. wide by 5 feet high. Whoa, baby. And then they'll go up to, you know, 300 feet long. Yeah. So I'll have about a ton of, of uh, compost per linear foot. Your family is invested through your lifetime in mm -hmm. the co-op. But what is the benefit to farmers of being part of the co-op? Right, so... In the 1980s, with the farm crisis and the um, ups and downs of the dairy industry, you know, that's how it was founded. Was a, looking for a, a stable um, milk price and mm -hmm. keeping small farms uh, viable. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've just seen in the last, you know, say five years of uh, ups and downs of the dairy industry of going up to, you know, say $26 a hundredweight all the way down to, you know, 10 and 12 and uh, you know, Organic Valley's held in, held the price and maintain it for uh, farmers like me to be able to continue making a living. And it's, a, you know, a stable pay price. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a huge, of course. huge thing. Yeah. There's a period of time that you worked for the, the co-op. So clearly, you know, it's, it's something, it's very meaningful to your life. Yeah, definitely. So uh, right after college, I had the opportunity to work at Organic Valley and I, uh, Worked in the sustainability department, working on uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy projects, and that was uh, opening to meet so many more OV farmers and work on, um, yeah, on sustainability and reducing energy load. And, you know, we've taken that, some of that stuff here. You know, at the farm, I uh, this is my it'll be my twelfth year full time on the farm here, and um, yeah, we continue to try to you know reduce our energy load by you know putting in a free heater to harvest some of that heat off from the milk cooling compressor and preheats water before it goes into the water heater 
and uh, we installed a plate cooler to pre-cool the water before, or the pre-cool the milk before it goes into uh, the bulk tank to be cooled down to the correct temperatures. And uh, yeah, we keep uh, working on you know reducing our energy uh, consumption, and uh, you know it, it's good for the environment and then our bottom line as well because you know we're a small business and trying to make a you know a living here too. Mm -hmm. So. So talk about the soils. Has your approach to you know building up the soil and its you know storage as well as health been an evolving process as well? Right. So I started our nutrient management plan. I took a class through Southwest Tech, just south of here, um, in twelve, and then since then every uh, two to four years, I soil sample every field and pasture that we have, and they continually track that. Uh, as far as nutrient application from our uh, dairy cows and um, uh, manure and compost. And um, yeah, it's been fun to see the progression of uh, some of our fields maintaining or increasing, you know, uh, fertility and then organic matter as well. And like even the pastures are, you know, by far the highest organic matter that we have. And, you know, Around the area, you know, you see some two and three percent. I have some, some threes and fours, and even in our pastures right now, we have some five percent organic matter, and uh, that's you know fun to see. And and then when I sample our compost, our finished compost that I um, we make here on the farm, you know, that's uh, ten percent organic matter. So when you're applying, you know, five to fifteen tons to the acre, that'll continue to you know feed the plants and feed the whole cycle of our uh, our farm but then also increase our organic matter and water holding capacity and some resilience with uh you know from super wet years we've had since yeah. last time we talked yeah. and uh, floods and gaze mills to uh super dry years like this so anything else on the climate solution side yeah I, you know organic i think is has been a uh, you know good solution to have livestock out on pastures mm -hmm. and eating what they you know belong to eat is you know forage-based diets and um, you know continue to do rotationally grazing you know working on building our soils and uh, you know sustainable farming practices for all types of you know runoff uh, mitigation and then also you know building soils and organic matter and try to close the loop on everything that we're doing here on the farm to you know sustain for another hundred years. Jake Wiederberg is a farmer and a member of the Organic Valley Co-op. He spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz. This conversation was part of WUWM and NPR's Climate Solutions Week coverage. You'll hear more reporting on ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change throughout the week and find more at WUWM.com. Coming up later in the show, we'll learn about the documentary The League. It shares the journey of the Negro League through unearthed archival footage and never-before-seen interviews with some of the legendary baseball players. But first, we'll play a music game with a Milwaukee Latin dance instructor. She helps pair dances with songs, so keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. 
Whether it's from Bogota or Belize, Santiago or Sao Paulo, dance is an important part of Hispanic culture and heritage. But there are so many styles of dance. Which ones go with which music? Carlise Kelly Vadula is the owner of Milwaukee's Panadanza Dance Company, and she can help us with that. WUWM's Mayan Silver asks her to identify the dance to go with each song. Yesterday on Lake Effect, Carlise picked out the cha-cha-cha, bachata, and cumbia, and gave us some background on those styles. Today, WUWM's Mayan Silver cues up some new dance music for her. The game continues for Carlise. We rolled out another track called Mele Tonton Bay by Los Hermanos Ayala. Remember, Carlise has no idea what type of music I'm going to play. I wanted to play this for you and see what you think about this or if you could just weigh in on this. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. What style was that? Was it in a bomba style? Yes. Yes. It's called Seis Corrido, and it's called it's from Loiza, so which is the most African region in Puerto Rico, and it's actually the fastest style of bomba, and some people call it Holandes as well. Gotcha. So. That was uh, Hermanos Ayala. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're such a beautiful group and one of the main elders who have kept this tradition alive. Nice. Okay, awesome. Okay, and you mentioned bomba, and that's, of course, a major type of dance where basically the dancer leads and the drummer follows, right? Yeah, the roles are definitely switched, you know? And, and that also has a lot of African influence, where they say, really, the dancer is the drummer, and the drummer is the dancer, because... The the dancer tells the drummer exactly what you want to be played. And it's this instant conversation. Right? If, if he's not getting, I have to do it again and have to be patient. Or maybe it doesn't work, I have to switch to something else. But it's that improvisation that is born exactly at that moment. And it's so beautiful when we talk about improvisation because there's no better time than the present when you are improvising. You're listening to Lake Effect. I'm WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with Carlise Kelly of Panadanda Dance Company. We're asking Carlise to listen to Latin music and tell us which dance goes with which song. I've queued up the next track for her. It's Kashambu by Almir Guineto. See what you think of this. So I see you clapping. That's the first thing you start doing. But we also have your your track that you were doing. Carlise and her husband Kiran produced a video in which Carlise sings samba a cappella. You've broken it down into so many different parts, into its essences. Like how does how do you process the samba? Mm. 
So the speed of the samba is really articulated by the surdo. The surdo is, <laughs> it actually translates to deaf drum, which is the biggest, deepest drum in samba. And that can't, that really dictates the speed, you know, the tempo of the music. And everything else in caja fits right in between that. <laughs> you can't just imagine. And that's how fast your hips got to go with that. <laughs> but I love that that bass drum gives you the, the chance to breathe or go fast. You know, you can always come back to that because the chatter will always be there. <laughs> the outside instruments are always going to want to. Um, come back and entertain you and once you have really reached that advanced level the point is that you can actually ride the melody or ride all those other instruments and be just on time to come back to that main group to the main drum Ooh, are you counting or do you just know it uh, if you're just learning it you're gonna base it off the count but once you have it, it'll just be in your bones. Wow. And one of the things that I loved when I went to Ivory Coast to do my research was they said, oh, there's no counting here. We sing it. We sing. We sing because that's how you're going to do it. You're gonna, if you can sing it, you can dance it. So I, I love also basing that in my classes. Every time when we do something, we actually vocalize it first. And then how do we incorporate it in our bodies? Always the question. We broke out our last track for Carlos. Salsa Pal Bailador by Spanish Harlem Orchestra. On our last guessing game for the music. <laughs> love this game so much. Yay, People at home, please do this with your family. Perfect, perfect, okay. So again, we've got something that I'll play the beginning of, and then I'm going to jump ahead to a specific part. And here we jump ahead. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that salsa. Yes. Salsa, salsa. Yay, salsa. we got the salsa. And I love that bass in there. You 
you got great rhythm. I love you for it. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I, I, and then, you know, you can't deny the horns in salsa. Those are some of the best players. And the hits. I love dancers, really, really. All of us just love a good hit. And salsa, you can never go wrong. It's always there. It's always surprising you. Okay, bam. Hair to the right. And then swivel to the left. It's just always. It's so interpretive. It's always surprising, which is one thing why I love salsa. It's like floating, like when you watch the couples dancing salsa well to that type of music. Like, it's like... And when the dance floor hits like that and you've got the Montunos with the piano. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and the of course the drums and everything working together. It's like this just like boom of rhythm yes. and everything. It's and, amazing. And that's what I love about it is that there is so many instruments you can focus in on salsa. You know, you take out all the instruments and then you just live in the bass. And then you find your groove and your shoulders with the bass. But then in here I saw that they broke it down to rumba. And then you come into the rumba steps. And that's what I love, love, love about salsa is that everywhere you go in the world, you find it so differently. Like in Panama, some, you say salsa and it's very Calypso-like. And you go to Colombia and in Cali, ooh, those feet go crazy. They are just so fast and just always with the cowbell. Ding, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong. And then you go to L.A. and there's a whole bunch of lifts. And then you go to New York and, of course, they got those Tito Puente, Eddie Torres over there that really focused on the two, right? And Boogaloo. And then here... Really, it's just such a beautiful mixture. And now, you know, you get Brazilians putting in samba salsa and then cha-cha-cha into it. And my favorite, of course, Ruben Blades, who, if you haven't heard this album, Mundo, by him, he even has stuff from Ireland. got chills when they jumped into the salsa part. (laughs) Ah, me too. He's one of my favorite people to listen to and one of my idols since I was a little girl. The dances come up in all these different countries, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama, Colombia, everyone has. So how does it feel to you as somebody who's part of one tradition but can also tap into all these other traditions? I love one aspect of it, which is the skirts. I love using the skirts. And everywhere I go, actually, I take a shawl with me because 
the use of fabric is very common all throughout Latin America in dances. You know, in Puerto Rico, you got the bomba and everything is accented through the skirt and the tela. I love this phrase. It's called, <laughs> I heard this singer, Calle Trece, which is one of my favorite rappers. He's Puerto Rican. And he says, Sacude la tela en el nombre de tu abuela. Sacude la tela en el nombre de tu abuela. Which in English doesn't in English doesn't rhyme as good in Spanish, but it translates to shake your tela, your fabric, in the name of your grandmother. Isn't that beautiful? Nice. Yeah, and it really everywhere I go, I'm, I find commonalities with people all throughout Latin America. Well, how do you hold your pollera? You know, in Panama it's called pollera. In Cuba, it's called saya. In Puerto Rico, they call it falda. So it's the same prop, and it's used in so many different ways. You know, and in Brazil, too. It's, it, and it's also beautiful the way it's carried. Some people like to hold it right where the ruffle begins. You know, some people hold, like, their whole front to show. And... To watch people wear these skirts is one of the most beautiful things I've witnessed. And even in my classes, you know, I have, till this point, sewed up to, I think, I'm, I'm number 49. I'm almost at 50. I sewed 50, almost 50 flared skirts. And every time I put anybody in that skirt, it's like, you can see this transformation. They become somebody, they become themselves, really. The one five-year-old that wanted to shine so hard is, like, present, and it's so beautiful to watch that. That's the beautiful thing about these dances and music is that we do find a commonality because the, the instruments are all so similar. The guira is in Colombia, is in Puerto Rico, you know, all throughout Latin America. All the instruments are there. They're all the same, but they're all playing different rhythms. You know, I think what you've done here today is sort of like given a little bit of a gift of, of opening some people's eyes who might not know that there's so many subcomponents and subcultures to Latin music and Latin dance, and giving them a little bit of an ear to be able to identify, hey, you know what, that sounds like a cha-cha-cha, or that sounds like a bachata. Yeah. So, yes. thank you so much, Carlise. Oh, what a fun time. Thank you for having me and Yay. playing these games. Carlise Kelly Vadula is the owner of Panadanza Dance Company. She played Match the Music to a Latin Dance Style with WUWM's Mayan Silver. You can hear their full conversation at WUWM.com. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. We'll take another break and then learn about The League, a new documentary all about the history of the Negro Baseball League that will be opening the Cultures and Communities Festival tomorrow at the Oriental Theater. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWN. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Are you familiar with the Milwaukee Bears? They were a Negro National League team that only played for one baseball season here in 1923. Although their tenure here was short, they are part of a longer historic legacy. The Negro League was a stage for some of the world's best athletes and also served as an important economic and social pillar for black communities around the country. A new documentary called The League dives into the dynamic journey, triumphs, and challenges of the Negro League through the first half of the 20th century. It'll be the opening night film of the Cultures and Communities Festival tomorrow night at the Oriental Theater. Ahead of its screening, I'm joined by producer Byron Motley and executive producer Josh Green. Josh, Byron, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for asking us to be here. Thank you so much, Audrey. We appreciate it. This film is dedicated to Bob Motley, who was a Negro Leagues umpire and co-author of the book, The Negro Baseball Leagues. Byron, you, of course, wrote this book along with your father, Bob. Can you share a bit more about your intimate connection with this project and how it came to life on screen? Well, it was, it's been a labor of love the last 24 years I've worked on this project. So um, I started working on this project 24 years ago, doing interviews with former players uh, and the last living umpire, of course, my father, and um, just kind of piecing the story together as best I could from the stories I got from all these great, great men and, and women who are part of the history of the leagues. But I loved hearing my father's stories about the experiences he had with, had, had with Satchel and Buck O'Neill and some of these great athletes. So I grew up around that history. The older I got, the more I thought about it and really appreciated those stories is that not everybody knows these stories, which got me thinking, uh, there's probably more to this story than what I didn't hear from him. So that's kind of how this process began. So this documentary covers a wide span of baseball history, starting after the Civil War up to the 1950s to show, most importantly, that Black players have always been a part of and central to baseball. The tone is joyous, it's celebratory, and I imagine it was made with the same sense. Can you share what you all felt was most important or perhaps what was your personal guiding mission that helped you with the editorial process? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think everybody had a, had a passion for the story, for the subjects, for getting this out to the world. And this particular movie, there were, in all honesty, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, which happens on movies. You need a lot of people to do a lot of different things. But I think the the spirit of, again, and the passion of, of the stories themselves, of the characters, of what we knew there was a bigger mission there. And I think we all did our best to work together to, to make the best movie that we could make. And the, the guiding spirit really drove all of us that this was something bigger than any of us and that we were doing Bob Motley justice and we had to do the Negro Leagues justice because we knew how important it was. So I think I think that drove us to really put our heads together and and do the hard work and, and get to where we got. So it wasn't easy, but we made it. Yeah, I think it was just um, to really tell as much of the story as possible. Because uh, there's so many stories in the Negro Leagues about the Negro Leagues, because we only hit the tip of the iceberg for all the other stories that are woven in this incredible history. That was the idea, the concept for me from the very beginning was to tell as much of the story as possible so that people can be inspired by 
and be excited about and then go out and read more and learn more about this history. With any sports documentary, and I think you guys do this really well, it's easy to focus on only what happens on the diamond, the players, the internal ecosystem. But what the league explores really well is the whole ecosystem that the Negro League impacts. And I think it's very important to explain for anyone who will be seeing this soon and learning more that you especially take care to note that a successful black baseball team meant that there was often a successful black community built around it in all the cities that the league was in. Absolutely. Well, it had to have that community to make it a success. And at the time, baseball was king. Everybody in the country, I think, loved baseball. If you didn't like baseball, you respected it because you knew what it meant to other people. So the black community was no different than that. And um, like I said, it was just heaven, <laughs> as my father would say, to be at a, at, at a Negro League baseball game because everybody was dressed to the nines. Everybody was looking good and, and ready to have a good time. And they would come out for a doubleheader and want to say for a triple header if there was if there was one playing you know they just love that game it was it was a great fun for everybody just fun and that's the one thing i kept talking to the team about is that we need to, for this documentary to show the fun because that's what negro league baseball was all about yeah i think it was uh, just to add on I, I agreed it was that was a huge part of what you know byron wanted to convey and because this obviously as you know you could have and we dealt with it's a serious topic american history and what segregation and you know all these things were very you know lynchings and you know it's i mean it's very intense what happened to these neighborhoods so it, it could have been a dark just a dark movie and i think byron was always the balance of saying yes we have to present you know how baseball history mirrors american history and and how what the obstacles were to to you know to that business to building that and, and and it shows how incredible it was that they built that business despite all those obstacles i mean third largest you know black enterprise um you know incredible communities um that that were doing very very well because of the negro leagues and i think you know but it was also important to balance it with you know the the challenges and the tragedies and the and the you know the gravitas of that time period and what these players went through you know to play four games and in, in a day or what, whatever it was and and to do it with a smile on their face you know because it, as we say in the movie it wasn't about the money or getting famous it was i mean they wanted to play ball you know yeah. so it's just it's just a big testament to everybody involved in the negro leagues and i think you know the other part for me was that what blew me away was that you know like i think everybody just assumed integration was just a, a thousand percent positive you know and i think that was a big part of why everybody kind of got on this train of like, I, I didn't know there were all these negative repercussions of that, that still exist today. Mm -hmm. So those, some of those communities that never recovered once those Negro league teams shut down and integration happened, it still has gone on today. And, 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 and we say that briefly in the movie, in a sense, in New York, in big cities, in New York, in Chicago and Philly. So I think it's, it's those repercussions have lasted to today. You know, integration wasn't perfect. A lot even, of people got hurt, you even, know. Even um, in, in Milwaukee, I'm sure. Milwaukee, ab absolutely. A, I'm sure I've been true. there a couple of times, but you take a drive around the streets and drive through the, the Black neighborhood, and you'll see the dilapidated uh, buildings are still there. Been there for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Why is that? You know, it's, it's still there. You see it everywhere. And there's no sense for that. It makes no sense. 
why isn't somebody putting money into that and making it rebuild and regain its energy? Just some things just haven't haven't changed. For both of you, after having spent so much time on this project, what's the enduring importance of the Negro Leagues for you that you hope audiences will take away? Keep the spirit alive. Keep learning about it yourself. Never let it end. There's so much great history. Uh, it's up to all of us. It's up to all of us to keep the spirit alive. That's what Buck O'Neill told me during the uh, the first interview I did with him. He said, it's, it's up to you. He's up, it's, 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 you're doing this, it's up to you to tell the story and do it, and do it the right way. I, I think for me, it's um, the game today is played because of the Negro Leagues and the, the style of play and the the what the players created, what those people like Rube Foster and the managers and, and executives created this, this style of game, that is what is played today. So the impact on the game itself that the Negro leagues had, and, you know, we didn't really even mention this in the movie, but the Negro leagues players played in Asia. They were brought over to Japan to play. So, you know, the impact of even on baseball globally from by the Negro leagues, you can't calculate. I mean, it's, they might be the reason baseball's so big in Asia right now. No doubt. Yeah, not to mention the the impact on having Latina players in the game, which is huge now. That was not allowed back then. So I think it's the impact on the game, but I also think it's just a, I think it's like Byron said, it's it's all about the truth and understanding history for what it was, understanding, you know, the important people, you know, that impacted history and getting it accurate and uh, not only conveying the fun, of course, of all of it and the fact that under incredibly difficult circumstances, the black community built this incredible business that changed the world. But I think it's getting history right. And we're, we're, we're living in an age where, you know, facts are debated now and history mm-hmm. books are being, you know, things are left out and rewritten and depending on politics and whatever. And, and to me, it's like this story needed to be presented factually and, and as authentically and honestly as possible. And that's that's super important to me that people know our real history. And I, I hope people take that away from it. Byron Motley is a producer and Josh Green is an executive producer of The League. You can see the documentary tomorrow night at the Oriental Theater as it opens Milwaukee Films, Cultures and Communities Festival. You'll find a link to more information at wwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll remember WUWM's first general manager who passed away recently. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into whatever happened to the animatronic bear orchestra at the former Grand Avenue Mall. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.